Amen. What a tremendous message and what a beautiful song. Would you take out your Bibles this morning and uh, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Find uh, the book of Isaiah and then when you find it, uh, find chapter 42. The 42nd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Well, as you're turning there this morning, let me tell you a little story. Um, 11 years ago, this past February, I made one of the biggest decisions of my life. I, uh, you say, what did you do? Well, I walked into a jewelry store, all right? And uh, I walked into a jewelry store to grab the engagement ring that I would give to my wife who's here this morning, all right? And I remember walking into that engagement store, not engagement store, ring store, jewelry store, and uh, I remember checking all the stuff out, and you know, at one time Jessica and I had done a little ring shopping, and um, but but I remember being there at the counter that day, and the lady who was helping me, she uh, you know asked what I wanted, and I pointed to it, and she took out this ring, and I just began to hold it up, and she laid it down. I remember she laid it down on a dark felt piece on the top of the counter there, and if you've ever been in a jewelry store, you know the lights in a jewelry store are just like dazzling, and. Uh, and all the lights on it, and uh, you know, we're talking about all the important things you got to talk about when you're buying an engagement ring, the carrot, the cut, the clarity, and all that. I, I remember looking under a microscope at this thing and looking at the imperfections. I mean, I haven't done it since then, but I, I mean, I can tell you a little bit what it looked like. And, and uh, you know, you're looking, you, when, you're, when you're about to buy an engagement ring, you want, you want to buy the best thing, you know, you know? and so, so you, you're looking and you're, you want to be, you know, you're thinking about all these things. And I'll never forget, she took the ring and, you know, you can just kind of take it and spin it there in the light and the, the light in that room and the dark background behind it, it just made the diamond light up, you know, it just lit up with what seemed like a thousand different colors, you know. And it's, uh, and, and that happens because of a number of things. One, the, the nature of the diamond itself, right? The, the beauty of that rock. But also against that dark backdrop that it was laying on and you think about all of those things, it's actually quite a fitting uh, thought to come to a passage like Isaiah 42. Because when we open our Bibles to the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, we're actually uncovering a very beautiful gem. I wish I had five hours this morning to preach all of Isaiah 42. Um, because it is so rich. It is so deep. We, we're going to barely scratch the surface on the first four verses. But this morning, as we open up this passage, we, we find this jewel, this uh, and, and, it, and it's set, this story in Isaiah 42 is set in really a very dark setting. It actually is probably what makes the hope of this passage so much brighter. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, you understand that as Isaiah the prophet is writing this, uh, for a long time, God's people had been in a divided kingdom. You'll remember that, don't you? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that Israel had been divided into two separate kingdoms. There was the northern ten tribes that Bible scholars and they referred to as Israel, and then in the south, there were the two tribes of Benjamin and, and Manasseh, and, and as we think about those two tribes in the south, they're referred to as Judah. And, and the context in the book of Isaiah is that things are really quite a mess, if, if you were to look out on just the landscape of what was happening in Isaiah's day, you would say that their nation was in crisis, uh, things were in complete chaos, uh, the people of God were experiencing the judgment of God because of their idolatry, they had turned their backs against God, and in that they were facing judgment, and so they had 
done what we, we so sadly read happening in the Old Testament, that God's people continually forsake the Lord and they turn to idols. And this was what was happening in this context. It was during the ministry of the prophet Isaiah that the northern tribes of Israel are taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. They are conquered. And, and Isaiah, as a prophet, begins to warn the southern kingdom. He says, uh, really, if you don't return to the Lord, if you don't heed what God is saying, the same will happen to you. And what we read is what is so tragic that the southern kingdom doesn't learn their lesson. They don't learn their lesson. They continue to love their idols. And yet, God continues to warn his people. And so in the midst of all of this, we discover something happened here in Isaiah chapter 40. If, if, if you go back just two chapters from where we'll be picking up this morning, in chapter 40, Isaiah begins to just lay out this beautiful vision of, of what God is going to do, but it, it will come with much cost. That because of Israel's idolatry, because of their uh, turning away from God, the prophet in, in chapter 40, begins to envision this time when God's people will be taken captive. And for 70 years, we discover that the nation will be in captivity. But the promise in Isaiah 40 is that God will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his people. And so there is, even in this uh, foreshadowing of the judgment of God that would soon come, there is, in some sense, hope and comfort and encouragement. And so then in chapter 41... Um, God begins to take up a challenge with these false gods. And uh, we don't have time to read it. You can read it as your homework this afternoon. But in chapter 41, God literally begins this court case where he takes these false idols and he puts them on trial. And, and he, I just love this. You just think about the, what this says. And, and, and in chapter 41 and verse 23, if you want to look there, God tells these false idols. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the God of Jacob. Verse 24, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And, and in a sense, what God is telling the nation is that they had forsaken him and they had turned to idols. Now, I just want you to think about the sense of all of that. Because what Judah is doing is they were doing in their generation what is happening in our generation. People are forsaking God. People are turning away from God. And, and in that, people turn to idols of their own making. You know, the problem in, in the world today, the most fundamental problem is not a social problem. It is not a financial problem. It, it is not a moral problem. The, the, the problem in our nation today and the problem that is happening in our world today is that people are creating for themselves false saviors. They're creating for themselves these idols that cannot bear up the weight that we place in them. And, and, and it's happening in, in, in every generation. It happens in our life. We turn away from serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And somehow we think, I can create an idol. And we may not call it that in the 21st century. But what we're doing is we're creating something. We're putting our trust in something that we think can hold the weight of what we're facing. In fact, if we, if we just read the history books, if we would just read our Bibles, we would learn that all of those things that so often we put our trust in are unable to bear up the weight under the weight of what we place on it. And the irony of what was happening in God's people is they had turned from the Lord, the almighty living God, and they had turned and they had, the irony of it all is they made themselves idols, idols that they conceived of. Idols of their own imagination. 
of their own hands, and they worship these idols. And it's like this idea that somehow this statue, this, this thing that I've created would be able to speak <laughs> and tell me what it is that I don't know about the future. I mean, do you just see the irony in that, right? Like creating something that you think then will tell you, and they don't speak. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 41, uh, it ends in verse 29, speaking of idols, notice God says, Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. What is God saying? He says they can't speak for themselves. (laughs) These idols cannot speak. They are empty. They don't even have bad news for us. They have no news for us. They cannot speak. Turn to your neighbor and tell them this morning, they cannot speak. They cannot speak. We get to the end of chapter 1, and God is in this courtroom, and he's calling on these idols to set their case, to prove their point, to speak. And we get to the end of chapter one, and there is, uh, chapter 41, and there is deafening silence. Of course not. These idols made with hands cannot speak. But in chapter 42, we turn the page, and a God does speak. God speaks. The maker of heaven and earth speaks. He is as if we turn the page in chapter 42 and, and God says, behold, notice, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. It's as if in the silence of everything that is deafening, God takes a bright spotlight and he turns it to his servant and he shines this bright light on this diamond and he says, behold, my servant. My spirit is upon him. God is speaking. And in chapter 42, it is all the things that God the Almighty does. It is what he says. He starts straight away. He says, behold, my servant. We say, who is this? Who is, who is this servant that God is speaking of? Is it the nation of Israel? Is it Cyrus? Is it, who is this? This past week, I was in the kitchen and my wife said to me, she says, what are you preaching on Sunday? I said, well, I'm actually still kind of working through that right now and praying. And Ashlyn was sitting on the counter and I looked at Ashlyn and I said, Ashlyn, what should daddy preach on Sunday without skipping a beat? Jesus. Hey, that's good news, amen? Amen. That's what I'm going to preach on this morning is Jesus. Who is the servant in Isaiah 42? Someone tell me. Who is it? Say it louder. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Notice the servant in Isaiah 42 is one of the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And we're not told, actually, in the book of Isaiah, who is the servant? We're not told. But as we unfold the pages of the Bible and as the canon of Scripture begins uh, to be written, we, what emerges from all of that is what we discover is that Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the servant in the book of Isaiah. It's told for us in the book of Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us that, that, th- that this is referring explicitly to Jesus Christ. And the Christian life begins with that this morning. I don't know when it was that you came to know the Lord as your Savior, but the Christian life this morning begins the moment we behold Him. When God says in verse 42, chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant. God wants us to set our gaze on Jesus. He wants to focus our eyes on Him. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So what we discover in this passage is that Jesus is the servant. And in, and in chapter 42 is the first of these four songs in the book of Isaiah, all of them speaking of the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is referred to in verse 1 as what? How is he referred to? As a servant. You know, we know that in the New Testament. We think about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Jesus is not just as servant to us by way of example. Jesus is a servant to us in how he ministers for us. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw nigh to God through him. Since he lives, the Bible says, he always lives to make intercession for them. So notice in verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. God says, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus was empowered by the spirit of God. If we look at the life of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, what we discover is that Jesus did nothing apart from his Father. Jesus did nothing apart from the supernatural empowerment of the Spirit of God in his life. And so Jesus is the servant, but you ask the question, then what is he here to do? What is his mission? What, what, and how is he serving? And you can't miss it. Look down in your Bible. It's told for us in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 4. Notice verse 1. Look at your Bible. How will he serve? He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Number 4, he will establish justice in the earth. Someone tell me, what has Jesus come to do? Bring justice. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, he's here to bring justice. He's here for this purpose. Jesus came to bring justice. You say, what kind of justice? You know, when we think about justice in the Bible, a lot of us think about the day of judgment. We think about the day that we'll all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and on that day as king and ruler and judge, he will lay down his sentencing. That's actually not really the picture of justice that is laid out for us in this passage. In fact, when the Bible in chapter 42 is describing the justice of God, it is not so much his rule and reign in the world as much as it is his justice of mercy and compassion. You see, how will God do it? Notice back in verse 2. Look at your Bible in verse 2. How will God bring forth his justice? Notice, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He won't shout. He won't cry. He won't raise his voice. This is justice embodied with meekness and humility. This is Jesus, gentle and lowly. This is, this is Jesus, and notice in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning quick he will not quench. This is speaking of the character of Jesus. It's speaking of his gentleness. It's speaking of his humility. It's speaking of his, 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 his meekness, his, his tenderness. You see, it is in the gentleness of Jesus that we discover his greatness. Jesus is like a tender mother. It's like this passage. It's, you know, Mother's Day, and we think about our moms, and we think about uh, just the way that a mother's love is so tender, it's so caring, it's so gentle. And Jesus here is, he is the sovereign Lord of the universe, yet he comes as servant. He comes as one who will minister, and Jesus will minister by what? By bringing justice to the nations, but it's not the justice we think about. It's a justice that is embodied with this gentleness and humility. And notice the picture that Isaiah is painting for us. Look down in your Bibles at verse 3. Notice he refers to two illustrations. 
This morning, if you're keeping notes, we're just going to very simply describe it in three things. The illustration, the explanation, and the application. Notice number one, the illustration. What is, what is the picture that Isaiah is painting? He paints this picture of these two things. He's talking about a reed, and he's talking about a wick. You see, a reed in, in, in is a, what is a reed? <laughs> it's a stick. It's a kind of stick, you know, it kind of grows in mossy, moshy climates, you know. And uh, sometimes it had a number of different uses. It had measuring uses. Remember, they would measure with a reed. Um, it had a, a, sometimes people would use them if they were strong enough as a walking stick. But here, the picture is not a reed, but what kind of a reed? A bruised reed. It's this picture of a, of a reed that if you put any weight on it at all, it'll just snap in two. It was also used, reeds were also used in the ancient world um, as, as a kind of musical instrument. Shepherds out in the fields would take a reed and they would, you know, carve it out and work it and, and kind of make like a prehistoric kind of flute kind of a thing. And they would play these reeds. And so there were, there were different uses for a reed, but, but, but a bruised reed, what point is there in a bruised reed? What use, that was a bad joke too, wasn't it? What point is there in a bruised reed? I don't know that, I don't know. After a, it's a bruised reed, it, it serves no purpose, it serves no use. This past Friday night, I told you I was with the uh, youth. We had a big old campfire, not a bonfire, but campfire up at the property. And uh, we were all gathered around there and enjoying s'mores and everything. And then at the end of the night, I mean, this thing had just been blazing all night long. And we had to figure out a way to put it out, you know. So we take a big gallon thing of uh, ice water and water and cans of Coke and every, every last drop of water we had with us. We doused this fire. And how many of you know what it's like when you, when you douse that fire and the flame goes out, but sometimes you can see just that little ember of something that's giving off the heat. It's still slightly burning, but what use is there? There's all of this soot and there's all of this smoke. It's the picture that he's using here of this wick that is burning, but it's it's, it's this faintly burning wick. It's a smoldering wick. It, it gives off more smoke than it does light. It's not helpful. It's actually quite a nuisance. We'd probably be better off without it, right? And so this is the illustration. Isaiah talks about to the people that God is the servant who comes and he will minister bringing justice to the nation. But he comes to people. Notice the illustration here is about you and I. God comes to people who are a bruised reed and, 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 and a smoldering wick. And what's the explanation? What do we discover? Well, it's actually so plain for us to see. Isaiah gives this prophetic picture of what is happening here. Because these two things are for how we often do feel. I don't know about you and what's going on in your life this morning. I certainly don't know the feelings of Mother's Day and all of those things that can well up in our hearts. But I do know, and I think it's true, that, that, that we as people know what it feels like to be bruised. We know what it feels like to live in a broken world. We, we know what it feels like to be like this wick that feels worn out. We, we know what it feels like to just be bombarded by the pressure of life and it's bruising us so much that it would break us. We, we understand what it feels like to be so suppressed that we begin to feel disillusioned as to whatever all this means. And, and, and notice as we, 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 we just find ourselves, maybe you're here this morning and you say, I feel useless. I feel helpless. 
There are people in our society today that are feeling that. I, maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling that. You know, the tendency of our society, what we have in our world that is all about advancing ourselves is, 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 is these things like a bruised reed and, a, and, a, and a, a smoldering wick. What do you do? You just discard it. Just get rid of it. Just throw it away. It's useless. I mean, if you're out on a walk... And you're walking down a path and there's this reed and it's bruised and it's kind of hanging over, it's kind of bent. You would just go over there and snap it off, right? I mean, you see a candle in your house and it's down to the very last. It's like, it's just struggling to, to stay lit. You just, you just snuff it out. But here's the thing. Jesus comes to bruised reeds. Jesus comes to smoldering wicks and he doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't do either of those things. What does Jesus do? He supports and heals a bruised and fragile reed. Jesus fans the flame of the smoldering wick to revive it. Jesus comes to people like you and I, people that find themselves bruised and battered and and snuffed. And I don't know the feelings you brought with you here this morning. I know I... Just know Mother's Day brings a lot of feelings. Some of you this morning are mothers. Some of you long to be mothers. Some of you feel like you were abandoned by a mother. Maybe you're here this morning and you're grieving the loss of your mother. Strained relationships and maybe it's strained with your mother. All of those things allow us, it brings us to moments of feeling anxious. It brings us to moments of feeling discouraged. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you feel lonely or you're just in such grief and, and you say, nobody understands this. You, you talk to people in your family, but even in their expression to try and help you, it doesn't seem to help it. It just seems to exasperate the thing. And what does Isaiah want us to see here? As we open up our Bibles this morning on this Mother's Day and we look at Isaiah 42, God wants us to behold something. He wants us to see something. He wants us to, he wants us to fix our gaze like that spotlight on this diamond of Jesus who is so precious and to see who he is and the value that he has in each of our lives and, 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 and how we were made for him. And we see that God deals with, with, with hurting people. And how does he deal with them? God deals gently with hurting people. In the Bibles, Jesus dealt with Pharisees, hard-hearted people, very harshly. But I challenge you, look in the scriptures and find the moments where Jesus deals with hurting people and broken people, and Jesus deals with humility, kindness, love. Notice in verse 4, the Bible says, He will not grow faint or discouraged. There's actually kind of a play on words in this passage. We don't really see it in our English Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible, the word there um, to grow faint, the word to be discouraged is the same root word for the bruised reed. Um, What's it saying? Jesus doesn't bruise. (laughs) I mean, he was bruised and he was crushed. But he didn't stay there, did he? Isn't it amazing that Jesus never gets discouraged? Jesus never grows disappointed. Why? Because the Bible says he will not faint and he will not be bruised. Why? What are these things telling us about Jesus? They're telling us something really special. You see, we see the illustration, but what's the explanation? Two things. 
Jesus as the servant of God will endure all the same pressures that we've endured. As a reed, Jesus was, felt all the same pressures. He felt all the same things that you and I feel, yet he didn't break. He didn't bend. He didn't bruise. I, Jesus felt all the pressure, but he, he, he didn't smolder like that wick. Jesus knows what it's like to live in a sin-cursed world, but yet Jesus knows what it is to endure and to finish to the end. What does this teach us? Jesus understands my weakness. Turn to your neighbor this morning and say, tell him Jesus understands you. Jesus understands. Yeah, we may talk to family and friends and try to express, and they don't get it, but he always understands. He understands what we're feeling. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, since we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, the Bible says, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's great news. Because I don't know what you've been through this week, but there's great news because Jesus understands. He understands what you're going through. He's faced all those pressures, but he's endured to the end, amen? And he's able to save to the othermost. And he's a high priest who empathizes and understands our weakness. So what is this passage teaching me? It's teaching me that, that Jesus understands my weakness. But secondly, we discover something else. That just as Jesus will endure, Jesus will also succeed. We don't have time to unpack verses 5 through 7. But if you read it this afternoon, you'll see that, that Jesus will be empowered with the spirit of the Almighty and that the God who created everything is the one who is enabling this servant to endure in his mission and to finish and will succeed in the end. What is this telling us? Jesus will not only understand, he understands me, but secondly, Jesus will accomplish the mission that God sent him to do. Has he done that, yes or no? Yes. Yes. He has come. He has gone to the cross. He has gone to the grave, but he has, he has rose again, and he has ascended back to the Father. And the Bible says that he is interceding for us. God always finishes what he begins. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a good word for someone this morning. That whatever God started in your life, he will complete it. You might be discouraged this morning, but he never gets discouraged. He will finish what he starts. And this morning, as we look at the servant, we discover something so special. And that is that this good shepherd doesn't discard bruised reeds, but he restores them to sing again. I want you to look down in your Bibles. Look down at Isaiah chapter 42. Pick up with me in verse 10. Notice how the shepherd restores the reed so that it sings again. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that 
Peter, inhabitants, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like the man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Verse 14, for a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. This is God speaking. I will lay mountains and hills to waste and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, declares the Lord, and I do not forsake them. These are the things that I do, declares the Lord. I mean, that's a a sermon in of itself. Why? Because we serve an almighty God. We serve the King of kings and lords of lords. There is nothing too hard for him. And he has come as the servant in this psalm. He, He comes as one gentle and lowly. To what? To revive the hearts of the contrite, the Bible says. To, 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 to just to fan the flame of that ember in our heart that feels like it is just wearing to the very end. And God wants to do this morning by His Spirit. God wants to breathe fresh wind into your heart this morning. He wants to revive your heart. He wants to renew your heart. In your discouragement that has led you into such a pit, God wants to take that reed and renew it in your life so that you sing for joy. Do what you were created for. God does not break the reed, but he renews it. So what's the application here? I don't know about you, but I don't know how you go through life. I don't know what keeps you going. I certainly don't know the challenges that you face. I don't know the opportunities that are coming up in your future. But some of us this morning, we all can relate to this. We all can understand what it is to, to have feet that stagger, to have a light that flickers, And our society beats the drum to itself. You see, in our society, bruised reeds, smoldering wicks, those things are discarded. In our society, it's the the bright lights, it's the strong branches. Our society thinks that strength is power, that power is usefulness. Some of us are here this morning and we don't feel useful. We feel useless. Some of us are here this morning and we don't appear worthwhile. We feel worthless. So what is the application in all of this? The servant comes to heal. The servant comes to strengthen. The servant comes to renew God's strength is seen in the burdens that he bears, someone has said. And how many burdens is God willing to bear? All of them. Jesus cried out on that day, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus comes to those who feel so burdened. 
And Jesus says, come to me. Quit your self-reliant efforts. Turn from your idols of your own making and come to me. And there you will find rest for your souls, not just in eternity, but for right now. What does this mean? Will you receive it? Will you come to Jesus? Will you come to him in faith? Will you come believing that God can renew you? Can you come to Jesus believing that he does want to quicken your heart? Will you come to him in faith? The Bible says that faith without works is dead. Some translation says faith without action is dead. If if you want to believe that God can do these things in your life, but you're not going to take one step towards him to believe him for it, you're not going to experience what this passage is talking about. But if you will come to him in faith, if you will receive that promise into your life that God does promise to give you rest, but it requires you to seek after the Lord, it requires action on your part, then there is great healing that will happen in your life. How many of you know healing is not easy? Healing takes a lot of time. Sitting here looking this morning, Jay Dillon sitting there in the back, I never forget over seven years ago, I think it was Jay, wasn't it, this past year? Major accident. Jay airlifted up to Nova Fairfax. I walked in the room with Dr. Mason, Alan Lee. I didn't even recognize the guy. He had been so hurt. I remember we gathered around his bed to pray. Doc grabs my hand and he just loses it. He said, you pray. (laughs) I remember the next number of weeks and months visiting Jay. I'll tell you what, he actually looked worse after his accident, not better. Right? I mean, there was a period of time you looked at Jay and all of his bruises and you're like, are you healing? (laughs) Like, but, it, but bruises, bruises are part of the healing, aren't they? You know, we could ask Dr. Doug this morning. He could tell us the science of healing bruises. But if we're going to be healed in our life, it will come with bruises. Some of us want to be healed without our pride still intact, and that's not how it works. God says we come to him. We leave everything else. We don't come to him with our own pride and our own ability and then still want what he's going to do. We come to him with nothing. We we, we come to him by the sheer grace of God alone. And it is only by God's grace that I can be healed today. How many of you give an amen to that? It is by his grace. And this morning, God wants to heal you. That bruised reed of your life, God wants to make it straight again. He wants to inflame your heart with passion and your calling and the hope that that God has for you. What what God wants you to do in this life. God wants it to burn a blaze in your heart this morning. But would you come to him in faith? Would you come to him? Would you follow in him? You see, if we come to Jesus, we must not just believe what he tells us, but we must walk in the same feet, in the same pathway that Jesus walked. We, We not only come to Jesus by faith, but Jesus said, if anyone would come unto me, he must deny himself. We got to let go of our pride. We have to let go of our arrogance. We have to go let go of our self-reliance. Humble ourselves. Deny ourselves. Take up his cross. And what are we to do? Follow. 
We are to follow his example. We're to follow the way that he loved. We're to follow the way that he forgave. We're to follow the way that he endured. We're to follow the way that he served. You see, this is profound for us this morning because what does this mean? Do you treat others the way that Christ has treated you? The answer to that is no. I mean, we should. We should. Turn to your neighbor and say we should. But we don't. We don't. Children, you honoring your mom this Mother's Day? Spouses to your wife? Mothers to your children? Some of us just snuff out love from people's life because we're not like Jesus. Gentle, lowly, full of love, full of compassion. So what do we do this morning? Come to Him. Come to Him this morning. Wherever you're at, come to Him. Delight in Him. God delights in His servant. Delight in Him. What what, what can you delight in this morning as you examine that diamond of who Jesus is and His beauty and His awesomeness? You think about His love that is unfailing and unending. You think about His power that is unmatched and it's unhindered. You think about Jesus' gentleness and, and, and it's endless. You think about His justice in this passage. It's impartial. God says, these are the things that I do, declares the Lord. There's no equal to him. God says, you can't compare me to the idols. You can't compare me to other gods. He says, I I stand alone. I am unique. So would you rest in him? Would you rest in him today? Would Would you come to him realizing that he is all that I need? And the amazing promises... He's ours to have. He's ours to have. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. I pray for souls this morning, God, here that feel so defeated, so discouraged, so hurt, just wondering if anybody sees... Does anybody even care? Lord, help them this morning to see that you care. Help them to see that you understand their weakness. Help them see that you've come to save them out of it and that what you've begun in their life this morning, by your grace, you're going to finish. Lord, help us this morning to lay down our pride Help us to lay down our self-reliance. Help us to lay down our fears, our doubts, our insecurities. God, help us to lay down anything in this moment that is holding us back from following you with our whole heart. And then, Father, we pray that you would do a work in hearts this morning. Pray that you would just encourage wicks that feel like they're almost snuffed out, reeds that feel like they're about to break, Lord, help them see that you can heal, strengthen, renew, lift up. These are the things that I do, declares the Lord. You want to do it in their life for your glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would set prisoners free this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, 
Would you stand with me this morning? Jessica's going to play the steps here at the front. It will just be an altar this morning. Would you come? Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who are burdened and laden, and I will give you rest. Why don't you come to the Lord in faith? Take a step of faith this morning. Literally, take, put, put faith in action. And something as simple as walking out of your seat and coming down and kneeling at the front, would that just be an action from your heart that says, Lord, I'm expressing faith in you to meet me, to heal me, to help me. And I'm thankful, Lord, you're not going to forsake me. I invite you as Jessica plays, you just come on. Come kneel at the altar this morning.